When I pick up a book these days and begin to read it, I'm finding myself going to see when it was written. I think the years of 2020 and 2021 have been a hinge for all of us. And so as the author is making an argument for something, I'm just curious, is he making that argument in light of 2021 or has he or she written it before that time? These two years have had a significant impact on the whole world. So much has happened, so much has changed, so much is different. Life feels more serious somehow. We're more aware of pain and suffering, and we're hungrier, I think, for greater substance. Now, on the one hand, this seems to have led to a greater number of people asking thoughtful questions, longing for something unchanging and lasting and real. Honestly, I think I've bumped into more of you in this category here in the last two years than I have in the first 14. Making your way perhaps back to church after some time away, or perhaps coming to church for the first time, but you're asking thoughtful questions about God and about life and about what really matters and what will last. And though the spiritual sensitivity seems to be on the one hand, on the other hand, the world's frustration with the church seems to be more sharp and confrontational than I can remember. Which has placed pressure on Christians. Pressure that we're trying to determine how best to respond to. We've been discussing these things off and on for the last two years. We're asking ourselves the question, what's the playbook for this unique time to be the church? What's our game plan for pursuing faithfulness to Christ in our generation? A generation post-2021. A generation that's hungry to glorify Christ in the world that God loves so much. Now, Exodus may have been written thousands of years ago, but the message couldn't be more timely for us this morning. The main idea of Exodus 19, 1 through 8, is that God redeemed us so that we represent him to the world. God redeemed us so that we might represent him to the world. That's what we see in Exodus 19, 1 through 8. We're rescued by God from slavery in order to belong to him, and in order to represent him to the world around us. This passage, I pray, will inflame our hearts to remember God's redemption of us from slavery, not to nothing, but to himself. And I pray that this passage would summon, this passage would summon our hearts to represent God's heart and his law and his purposes to the world. So let's begin by remembering our redemption. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 4. And let's establish some context before we go any further in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 3. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God. Now, Moses timestamps this chapter for us. He lets us know it's three new moons or about seven weeks since they've left Egypt. And they've left most recently Rephidim, where Moses had struck the rock. And now they're encamped in the wilderness of Sinai, and more specifically, they're encamped at the bottom of the mountain of God. Now, they'll be at this spot for about a year, covering the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and Numbers 1 through 9. And then in Numbers 10, they'll set out from the mountain of God. That raises the question, what is this mountain? 
Well, tradition says it's an 8,000-foot mountain that rises out of the Sinai Peninsula. Some think it's the mountain Jebel Musa. But really, there's no conclusive evidence either way. And here's what's vital. Not where is this mountain, but what happened on this mountain. And in Exodus chapter 3, we read that Moses, while he is in the land of Midian, he's fled from Egypt, he's married, he takes on the shepherding load for his father-in-law Jethro, and he takes this flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he comes to the mountain of God. And at this mountain of God, God appears to him in a burning bush and tells Moses, go deliver my people from Egypt and bring them here to serve me on this mountain. And that will be the sign that I called you to this and that I was with you, that the people will return to serve me on this mountain of God. Now Moses summits the mountain and then God begins to speak in the second half of verse 3. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and and brought you to myself. Now God inflames the hearts of his people to remember their redemption. They're not just remembering in their minds what God had done. God's goal is that remembering would move their hearts, would inflame their hearts, And ultimately to change the way they live. To change the way they would represent him to the world. Now to redeem is to purchase from slavery. Israel as we know if you've been here was in oppressive bondage. And they've been redeemed or purchased from the Egyptians to God. And God makes them a nation. He says in verse 3 that you once were Jacob's family. But he also addresses them as the people of Israel. It's a reminder of 400 years ago, you came into Egypt as 70 people from Jacob's family. And now, 400 years later, you are the people of Israel, a multitude that cannot be counted. You're the people of God. You're a new nation. And in Genesis 15, 5, this is what God had promised Abraham. Go out and look at the sky and see if you can count the stars. So shall your offspring be. God is beginning to fulfill this promise, but only beginning to fulfill this promise. So God is reminding them, I've made you a nation, I've redeemed you, but how have I done this? I want to remind you what I've done to redeem you out of Egypt. Three things. First, I've defeated your enslavers. In verse 4, we read that you yourselves have seen, you see it with your own eyes, what I did to the Egyptians. This was your generation. You were in Egypt, you were enslaved, and you saw what I did to the Egyptians. For example, in Exodus 6, God says to Moses, I've heard the groanings of my people. uh, Of my people, of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. I've heard and I've remembered. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And so we have the ten plagues of Egypt. And after every, t- every plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart and he refuses and he rejects God's word and God brings another plague and God brings another plague. And finally, the firstborns of, of Egypt are killed and Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea. A great outstretched hand and great acts of judgment. But why is God doing this? God says in Exodus nine fifteen that I could have wiped you off from the face of the earth. I could have put out my hand and you would have been cut off from the face of the earth. So why does God draw this out? 
Exodus 19, 16. For this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what God is doing in the 10 plagues. It's what God is doing in the Exodus. He longs for all the nations to proclaim his greatness, to know the Lord and to treasure the Lord. So in the first place, to redeem them, God has defeated their enslavers. And then he's carried them out of slavery on eagles' wings. Look at verse 4. You've seen how I bore you on eagles' wings. The wingspan of an eagle ranges from six feet to seven and a half feet. It's enormous and powerful and allows the eagle to soar higher than most other birds. And in Deuteronomy 32.9, we read this. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. God found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled them and he cared for them and he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided Israel. No foreign God was with him. And you see how this God pictures for us this eagle with ferocious strength that uses its strength not only to defeat its enemies, but to safely carry Israel out of Egypt. Notice the nurturing care and the language that God uses to describe his own care for his own people. And not only has he carried them out of slavery, but God has reconciled to himself. Notice verse 4, and brought you to myself. Israel belongs to God. Israel is not merely freed from slavery. They are freed to God, which of course is what God wanted all along. In Exodus 6, 7, I'll take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Israel becomes God's very own precious bride, adopted and ushered into joyful fellowship. And church, this all drives toward one initial point. Remember your redemption. God seeks to inflame the hearts of his people to remember their redemption. I made you a people by defeating your enslavers, by carrying you out of Egypt as if on eagles' wings, and by bringing you to myself. Church family, God wants to inflame our hearts to remember to remember his redemption of us, his purchase of us, his, his rescue of us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory, the majesty, the might, the power, the beauty, the awe of God. We've fallen short of that because of our own sin. And our sinful rebellion against our precious, righteous creator has broken our relationship with him. And in Romans 6.20, Paul writes that we're enslaved to sin. And in 6.23, he says the end result of this slavery to sin is death and eternal separation from him. So this is a terminal illness that we have. Sin will end our lives and separate us permanently from God. We are groaning in slavery. But God has made a way. God has heard our groanings as he, like an eagle, is encircling above us, looking for us. And so in Romans 6, 
3.24, we read that we are justified, that is declared righteous, declared innocent, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the purchase, the rescue from slavery in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, as a satisfaction by his blood. That's how God is satisfied, by Christ's blood received by his people by faith. And this shows us that God is both the just, is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We have been redeemed and purchased from slavery by God through the blood of Christ. Christ's blood becomes the payment for our release and rescue from slavery. Church, do you feel it? Do you feel your redemption? Do you see what Christ has done to defeat sin's entanglement of us as his people? Do you see that Jesus cuts the vines that clutched your feet? Do you see that he's purchased you, that God has purchased you through Christ's blood from the clutches of sin's power and penalty? Do you see that he carries you as if on eagle's wings out of slavery back to himself? This is J.I. Packer. He writes that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. To be right with God is great. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Is your heart inflamed by God's redemption of you in Christ? Our sin no longer separates us from God. Whether that sin was 30 years ago or 30 minutes ago, that sin does not separate you from God if you are alive in Christ Jesus, if you are looking to him for your righteousness, not yourself. The shame of the garden, the Garden of Eden is long gone. For you who are alive in Christ have been clothed with his righteousness. The way into God's presence is no longer blocked by angels holding flaming swords because you have bold and confident access to the Father through Christ Jesus, your Lord. And standing there in the throne is a Father who throws open his arms to you and welcomes you with joy. Redemption is offered freely and decisively in Christ If you've not come to him, come to him today. Come to him with your big questions about life in this world that's been so altered in the last two years. Come to him for rescue. Come to him for certainty and hope. He's the only thing that can provide it. And he provides it in his own son. Now those of us who have been reminded of our redemption now are called upon, are summoned by God to represent our redeemer. Verses five through eight. Redeemed people obey their Redeemer. And that obedience is a representation of Christ to the nations. We don't obey to earn redemption. We obey because we've been redeemed. And what does God expect of his redeemed people? Look at the beginning of verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Where are they standing when God says this to Moses? 
Are they standing enslaved in Egypt or are they standing free at Sinai? They're standing free. These are commands given to people who have already been redeemed from slavery. They're not their own though. They've been bought with a price. They've been paid for and rescued by the Redeemer and they belong to him now. They have a new king who gives them new laws and speaks to them. And we see here that God calls on the people of Israel to obey his voice. My laws are delightful, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. They breathe life. They clarify purpose. They reveal justice to you. If they've been redeemed from slavery, if they've been made a new people by God's work, then they'll obey their redeemer. Why? Because their hearts are overflowing with gratitude. They love their redeemer. And so they trust his voice. They love their redeemer. So they trust his ways. They long to obey his voice because they love him. And they're grateful to him. God also tells the people of Israel, the redeemed people of Israel standing in Sinai, not in Egypt, that they need to keep the covenant of the redeemer king. But which covenant? Is it the covenant of the past? Is it Abraham's covenant? Or is it the covenant of the future? Is it the Mosaic covenant, the law that God is about to give to Moses? Well, I think it's both. The requirement of the Abrahamic covenant from 400 years before was circumcision. It was an outward sign that God's people belong to God. And obedience to the law that God is about to give through Moses is also an outward sign. It's an outward moral sign that they are God's people. And by keeping the Mosaic covenant that they're about to receive, God's people demonstrate outwardly that they are the redeemed people of God. Now, why is this so important? Because God's people represent the Redeemer. The, those who are redeemed represent the Redeemer to the world. And look at the texture and color that God puts on this in the rest of 5 and in verse 6. Three more things here. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. First, treasured possession. I want you to imagine that you wake to a fire in your home. What are you tempted to run for in the fire? What are you tempted to grab before you move outside? That's your treasured possession. That's your treasured possession. God gave up his own son, the son he loved. Why did he do it? For his treasured possession. To redeem and reconcile you. He did it because you are his treasured possession. And some of you need to hear this morning that God does not tolerate you. God treasures you. God treasures you, therefore God gave up his son, his beloved son, in order to rescue and redeem you and return you back to him. God's people are always redeemed to God. They are not freed from Egypt to sit alone in the wilderness. They are not ruled innocent by the judge and turned out onto the street to make sense of life on their own. 
No, they are adopted by the judge. They are declared innocent by the judge and then adopted into his family and embraced as sons and daughters because we are his treasured possession. He is not just our judge. He is also our father. And in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, we read this. The Lord your God is in your midst. We're not alone. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. Is that how you think God views you? Even in the wake of sin, even in the wake of repeated sin, are you viewing God like this? He's in your midst that he exalts over you, that he sings over you with gladness. This is the perplexing mercy of God. This is the extent to which Jesus turned us from rebels into sons and daughters by his work on our behalf. Now, God established his people in order to bless all the nations. It's what we see in Psalm 67. We are his people so that we might be a blessing to all the nations, which is exactly what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12. You will be a blessing to the ends of the earth. The blessings of God's people are meant to flow through us to all nations. It's always been God's design. And so we're not only just a treasured possession, we are also a kingdom of priests. And what does a priest do? A priest stands between people and God. A priest represents God to the people and a priest represents the people to God. In other words, God's people don't live for their own pursuits or purposes. We live lives ransomed by God for him. We are employed by the Redeemer King to make him known in the world. We're his representatives. We're his mouthpieces. Israel's job is to reveal God's heart to the nations And the main way they do that is their righteousness, which is the third point here. You're a holy nation. You're a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And then third, you're a holy nation. This is connected with the last point. But as Israel obeys God, their life together reflects God. Their justice reflects his. Their love represents his. Their commitments represent his. As Israel cares for widows, as they welcome foreigners, as they execute justice, as they treat neighbors fairly, as they worship the Lord only, they represent God, his heart, his laws, his purposes. They live together on earth and they show their neighbors what God is like. Now, what's Israel's response to God's word? In Exodus 19, 7 and 8, we read that Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the, of the people to the Lord. The people of Israel say, we're in. We're in. We're all in. We want this. We want what God is saying here. And I believe they meant it. But they also They failed. They failed as we would have done if we were standing with them. They failed, and so they wandered 40 years in the wilderness, and generations of Israelites would fail after this. 
Because instead of being a blessing to the nations of the earth, they became a reproach to the nations of the earth. Instead of unfurling God's glory, they became a mockery among the nations. In Ezekiel 22, 4, for example, you become guilty by the blood that you have shed, Israel, and defiled by the idols that you have made. You have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I've made you a reproach to the nations, a mockery to all countries. These are sobering words. But they didn't do what God asked them to do. The redeemed people did not represent their Redeemer well. And so instead of being a blessing to the nations, they were a mockery. But such is the nature of our God. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And so in Isaiah 49, God promises a remnant, a portion, a faithful portion of his people who will be returned to the land that God had given them. And God says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's not as if God's promises have failed There's a righteous remnant of God's people who will do exactly what God had called. And there will be one particular Israelite who will come as the light of the world, who will shine in the darkness, and who will do what Israel could not do on their own strength. Jesus will ensure that the promises of God, that the commitments of God made all the way back in Genesis 12 will be fulfilled. And so as we look in Revelation 5 to this throne, this heavenly future throne, what do we see? We see people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne. Why are they there? Because they've been redeemed and ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. And then Jesus sends his spirit to fill the church. And so it's by only by being made alive in Christ, being empowered by the Spirit, being inflamed by grace that we can obey these words. And to be a people, a redeemed people who represent our Redeemer. Church, this text is a summons to the church, to our church, to represent God's heart and his law and his purposes in the world. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We belong to our Redeemer King and we represent our Redeemer with gospel words and with gospel actions. We're going to close here with 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. Two quick things by way of application. First, we represent him by proclaiming gospel words. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies, the greatness, the might, the glory of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The one who redeemed you, proclaim his excellencies. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Redeemed people, proclaim what Christ has done. How could we be silent when he's given us hope? He's given us hope that our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our teammates and our classmates and our colleagues and our children so desperately need. And so we must contend for the truth 
when and maybe particularly when the truth is despised and rejected in the world? And what's the tone of our proclamation? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he, he warns them of false doctrine and false teachers and he, he confronts them and encourages them. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Lovingly in terms of your tone and lovingly as your goal. So think about your conversations. Think about your presence on social media. The saying goes, we need more light and less heat. We need to score less points. We need to pursue more persuasive, sustained, careful, measured arguments. God has gifted some of you in particular with sharp minds and the ability to make arguments and to write well. Use those gifts to combat the lies of our enemy. We live in a world that is desperate for the hope of the gospel that many of us have already received and more of us need to. We need to represent him well by proclaiming gospel words. We speak as his representatives. What does God want me to say here? How is the Spirit leading me to lean in here? I don't represent my own interests. I don't represent the interests of others. I represent the interests of the Redeemer who has left me here to represent him as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, as a treasured possession. Proclaim gospel words. And secondly, pursue gospel actions. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, called out of the world but left in the world, do two things. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see how high the stakes are? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, non-Christians, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the one hand, abstain from sin. On the other hand, lean in and do good. Live lives that are above reproach so that even if they call you evildoers, they can't help but see you're good. As cultural pressure increases, the church will be tempted to fly under the radar, to keep a low profile, to compromise. But listen, it is our strangeness, it is our very strangeness that God uses to proclaim his gospel. Because we live according to an eternal truth. We take our instructions from an eternal God who has spoken to us outside of creation. And so we are, by definition, countercultural. We are strange to the world. Embrace the strangeness. We represent Him as we live righteously in the world, so we abstain and refrain from sin. We also keep our conduct honorable. We do good in the world. We adopt children, for example. We extend hospitality to neighbors. We work hard at our jobs. We worship Christ. We provide order in creation. We endure persecution. We alleviate suffering. We pray without ceasing. We do these things. Why? So that on the day of visitation, when Christ returns for the church, 
Some who observed our good deeds may glorify God with us on that day. God may use some of our obedience, some of our faithfulness, some of our good deeds to show the world what Christ is like. We represent him. Now here's my appeal to you, church family. Let's hold the line together. Let's let the Spirit inflame our hearts, remembering our redemption, not just in our minds, but in our hearts until our lives are changed by the reminder of what Christ has done. And then let's represent him to the world. This is a summons to the church. Represent me. Show the nations what I'm like. Proclaim gospel words and pursue gospel actions so that the world might know and might join us on that last day in bringing glory to Christ. Spirit, I pray that as we stand and sing in a moment that you would press the truths of your word into our hearts that you might lift up Christ again for us, that you might unite us together as your people, and that those who are here who have not yet trusted Christ, would you draw them, Spirit, even now, even as we sing, would you show them the hope and certainty of a life with Christ? We pray these things in his name. Amen.